On any given day around 2 a.m., you'll probably find me in front of the computer, deep in a rabbit hole of research on whatever. Because generally speaking, the more clicks you get into something, the weirder it gets. When it comes to learning about the training police officers receive, the result is no different. Accountability begins before officers earn the badge. The training officers receive has an enormous impact on how they view themselves as well as their outlook on the communities they serve. So it may be surprising to learn that the basic law enforcement academy requirements in Washington State are a mere five months. In this chapter, we'll take a deeper look into what exactly these recruits are learning, where it comes from, and how the Criminal Justice Training Commission monitors the training and development of officers throughout their careers. This is State of Accountability, Chapter 2, Path of the Guardian. Hello, I'm proud to welcome you to the video training program called Path of the Guardian. This program is the vision of Daigle Law Group and its consultants to help protect you, the guardian, by developing the guardian mindset. On December 18, 2014, President Barack Obama signed an executive order establishing the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. The task force heard four days of testimony from those with expertise in the industry, along with input from the public, for the purpose of identifying best practices in the industry and to make recommendations to the President. There has been criticism and discussion over the last year on moving the police officer on the street from being a warrior to being a guardian. Listen, we know a warrior is a soldier and a fighter. That's not the mission of law enforcement. And if you are viewed in that light, the question is, who are we fighting? Who are we at war with? Well, we know that for years we have heard that you are fighting the war on drugs and the war on terrorism. No wonder you are now the warrior. We look like soldiers, we act like soldiers, we train like soldiers, we respond like soldiers. Please be clear, we are not soldiers. This has led to making the hardworking men and women of law enforcement a target for criticism and scrutiny. Somewhere along the way, we lost sight of the mission, and now it's your time to push back. The report produced by the Commission on 21st Century Policing was the impetus for a dramatic shift in training priorities for police officers. As a result of the report, law enforcement decided that the model of cops being warriors was no longer appropriate. The report recommended, quote, law enforcement culture should embrace a guardian mindset to build public trust and legitimacy, end quote. This tactic was not exactly embraced by some of the warriors currently patrolling the state. The Guardian model became known in law enforcement circles as the hug-a-thug approach. Despite the resistance, Washington has been at the forefront of Guardian training. Monica Alexander is the Interim Executive Director of the Criminal Justice Training Commission. The CJTC is responsible for training and certifying officers in the state of Washington. I talked to her about the shifting priorities of police departments and the training involved. I love watching how they're training people out here and how they're slowing things down a little bit. Let's not rush up to the car. If somebody says, I want to hurt myself, stay back and try to talk to them. See if you can get somebody meaningful on the scene that can talk to them. Just because they say they're going to kill themselves doesn't mean they're also going to kill you. 
but we but we think about that. We think this person has nothing to lose. What's going to stop them from killing me? And and it, listen, a lot is put on cops. Be a social worker. Be a, you know be a, a healthcare provider. Be also guess what? Be a cop. Be the enforcer. But be the kinder, gentler cop enforcer if you can figure out how to do that. So there's a lot that's asked of police officers, and I think when the community is saying, you know, we want social workers there, we want mental health care people there, I've heard a lot of police say, we do too. We want those people to help us because we don't always have the tools in our tool bag to speak to people that have these type of challenges where they think the end of the world is near. And I just want us to get to a point where we can safely police our communities. I want the cops to feel safe and I want the people to feel safe. And I wanna be some type of a conduit to that happening. If you listen closely, Monica's statement echoes the shift in training priorities. Fear was and still is a big motivator in training an officer. But a little at a time, that's given way to an acknowledgement that empathy for those in crisis will produce better outcomes. So what does training look like for future police officers? And where does that training come from? The CJTC's Deputy Director, Jarrell Wills, talked to me about training requirements for new recruits. So it's really sort of twofold. So it's uh, driven by and delineated uh, in the Washington Administrative Code, specifically is referred to as the WAC 139.05.250. And in that, there's like 11 categories of things we're sort of mandated to instruct. So we take all those legislative mandates and then we try to figure out where should they fit in the training uh, curriculum in all these categories and then develop the curriculum around existing curriculum and then some curriculum is omitted because it's outdated. We have staff, many of which, not all, but many of which are uh, prior law enforcement. Some are actually uh, currently in law enforcement. They instruct here and we know the, the topics as our staff sort of sits around and, 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 and tries to sort of understand what it is that we want our, our, uh, our recruits to know. I mean, when they graduate, we want them to have the basic skills um, to perform at a basic level in law enforcement. And, and the, the goal is, is for them to continue their education like in any um, uh, industry or, or um, occupation. And, and, you know, they can come back here for that or their agencies can provide it through private vendors and things like that. There's no science to it. Um, so I just, I, I'm just trying to be honest here. There's no science to, to how it's, it's, it's based upon sort of the, the hard skills, um, the skills that police officers um, will need. Sean Hendrickson is the Applied Skills Division Manager at the CJTC. Here, he's explaining how de-escalation training works. For uh, us, de-escalation is actually talking about um, the principles associated with patrol, all patrol calls. And um, and really what it comes down to, and, and when you look at the whack, the, the spirit of it and the intent of it, it really is talking about training officers to, to control the pace of events whenever they can. I'll be honest with you. When I was being trained as a state trooper, one of the ways they trained us was to get out of your car, you know, hurry up on a traffic stop, hurry up and get to the car because you want to make sure they don't have time to do all kind of things in the car. You want to be able to wash their hands. All these things are happening. And it's based off of things that have happened to other officers. 
that have been killed in the line of duty. We think about that. That is in our mind, especially, you know, out on the highway at one, two o'clock in the morning by yourself. Your, your closest backup is 10, 15 minutes away. You need things to go right. <laughs> you don't want things going wrong, right? And so your training is hurry up, get to the car, make sure you see their hands, keep an eye on them, get the spotlight in the right place. There's all these things. Um, I, I always tell people I, I feel very blessed that I got out of my career alive and intact, you know, physically, mentally, and emotionally. I still feel really good about people. I still love people. Um, I, I'm obviously kept all my limbs and because my hands wave around when I'm talking. Uh, <laughs> but but my and my heart still is in a good place for our people. So I consider myself one of the very, very blessed people. But I know other people that didn't make it out alive. I know I, I know troopers that were killed just by walking up to a car a car door. So that's always in the back of our mind. It's um, really pace control. Again, the language in the WAC and, and what we teach here too is distance management and the use of shielding when it's available to increase the amount of time that you have. So do you, do you teach like the 21 foot rule? No, no. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you know, kind of where that came from, um, the tool or, you know, it was in the eighties that they were trying to figure out at what distance a person armed with a knife could cover. And that really, I even hate calling it a rule, but that 21 foot rule came out of a person armed with a knife and the officer being holstered. I think that's a lot of times people either don't talk about that or forget about, about that. But we do so i when i vehemently said no to that question what we what we talk about and i already kind of mentioned is distance management is how close or how far away you should be from the person depending on the information the circumstances and the environment um but the idea to say you know there there was old training um that talked about drawing a line in the sand or the 21 foot rule and 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 we don't we don't teach that um, in any of our programs here as much as understanding, again, uh, the proper distance uh, in between the officer and the people that they're dealing with. Despite the changing priorities of officer training, there are still some areas that have not caught up with the times. I noticed another course in the, in the basic block uh, about excited delirium. Part of the 40-hour CIT course um, they talk about excited delirium. So that two hours is, I don't even want to call it an introduction, but it's just discussing what they're going to be going through in either the eight or the 40 hour CIT course down the road. In two hours, they get a very brief um, history of excited delirium and what the signs and symptoms are. That's about as far as they go. If you haven't heard the term before, excited delirium or excited delirium syndrome is claimed to be an extreme state of agitation and delirium, often combined with aggressive behavior, tolerance to extreme pain, extreme physical strength and endurance, and hyperthermia. Excited delirium is not recognized by the World Health Organization, the American Psychiatric Association, or the American Medical Association and therefore is not listed as a medical condition in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. 
The American Psychiatric Association says the term excited delirium, quote, is nonspecific, lacks clear diagnostic criteria, and should not be used as a diagnosis until such criteria are validated. The American Medical Association released a statement in June of 2021 stating the AMA, quote, opposes excited delirium as a medical diagnosis and warns against the use of certain pharmacological interventions solely for a law enforcement purpose without a legitimate medical reason, end quote. Specifically, the policy, quote, denounces excited delirium as a sole justification for law enforcement use of excessive force, end quote. Running contrary to medical experts are organizations like Lexapol, who are influential in the law enforcement community. They say, quote, excited delirium is a real condition. Excited delirium presents significant risk to officers and de-escalation tactics are not likely to be effective against excited delirium syndrome, end quote. And we saw this play out in the death of Manny Ellis, when one of the officers involved justified their use of force by claiming Ellis was suffering from excited delirium. Thumbing through the CJTC Basic Training Academy syllabus can tell you some pretty interesting things. In total, the academy is 720 hours, or 19 weeks long. Each section is broken down into blocks of hours. Given such a short amount of time, hours are at a premium. Admin and TAC time is 41 hours. This section covers exam time and the graduation ceremony. It also includes an hour for an intro to the chaplaincy program. The criminal law section is 57 hours. This block contains things like noise complaints, one hour, to domestic violence, eight hours. Nine of these 57 hours are being spent on testing and test review. So in 48 hours, students learn criminal law. For a bit of perspective, law school is generally two to three years of coursework after a bachelor's degree, and you have to pass the bar. Firearms training is the second largest block of training time at 88 hours. In contrast, use of force instruction is a mere six hours long with a two-hour test. As a casual observer, the time spent on some of these topics raises some concern. For example, high-risk handcuffing is two hours, the same amount of time as flashlights. People in crisis is also two hours long, the same amount of time as the class on civil rights. Would you trust someone to protect your civil rights that have spent a total of two hours learning it? Do you think that 720 hours is enough training time? I can say that it's, it's about average for the country, but um, based on the expectation of what these officers are going to have to do when they leave the academy, they need more time. Ernie Stevens is an honest-to-God hero. While with the San Antonio Police Department, Ernie set up a mental health unit of officers that respond to crisis calls. The team goes out in plain clothes to respond to people in crisis. What they do is practice patience and empathy and listen to people to help solve their issues. He and his partner were the subject of an extraordinary HBO documentary called Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. This is an absolute must-see. With regards to training, I know new recruits, like I was looking here in Washington State, they take about 88 hours of firearms training and about 
eight hours of crisis training. Could you talk about, you know, the disparity there and maybe what you think it should look like? Yeah, you know, and I heard that stat. I was up in Port Townsend and uh, meeting with the chief of police there a few years ago, and he echoed those same numbers. And I just think it, it, it's mind it's mind blowing to me because every single year an officer has to qualify with their firearm to show proficiency every single year. But not every single year is an officer involved in a shooting. But I can guarantee you, every single year, an officer is going to deal with somebody in a mental health crisis. Um, Every time I go to a class and I ask, who in here has ever dealt with somebody in a mental health crisis? Every single hand goes up. But if I ask, how many officers in here have been involved in an officer-involved shooting? Maybe one or two hands will go up. So we're training so heavily on the what could happen instead of the what is happening. And I think we're doing a disservice to the cadets that are coming through academies. And to be honest with you, I, I do feel that some of the training is very antiquated. And now we're seeing a spotlight in law enforcement for reform and change and updates and training. And I'm hoping with what's going on culturally, we will see this shift. I think slowly you will see this pendulum start to swing and officers will get more training, not just in mental health, but procedural justice, implicit bias training. All that needs uh, to be stepped up and advanced instead of just spending so much time on on the 1% of policing of what could happen. You know, CIT training has been around since 1988, and it's still amazing that only about 20% of police departments have trained their department in the 40-hour Memphis model of CIT training. But I think you're going to see the shift and more and more police departments go to a de-escalation model. Police departments are going to called LEAD, L-E-E-D, which is listen, explain with equity and dignity and, and have a different type of approach with community members. At some point, there's going to have to be political action. And, and what I mean by that is crisis intervention training is very decentralized. So there's no two programs that are exactly alike. Uh, for example, if I said, you know, out in one particular uh, county or department I went to, their CIT training is only 24 hours where ours is 40 hours. Um, Some have role plays, some don't have role plays. So there needs to be a national standard, number one, for the definition of use of force, so all police departments can be on the same page of what use of force is. And then when you come to training, there needs to be a centralized training as well, saying this is at least the criteria you need to meet for crisis intervention training. Just don't check the box to say, hey, we did it, uh, it was a it was a 16-hour course, but that's all the state required, so we're good enough. Well, good enough today isn't good enough. You have to be better than good enough. So I would like to see at some point um, some type of, of, of legislation come down that mandates a standardized, um, formalized training for crisis intervention. What you see is our home. Home to billions of people. Home of billions of hearts. And we all have a different electromagnetic field that is broadcasting the signature of our emotions into the larger energy field environment. Imagine what would happen if all the people you know started consciously adding more heart coherence to their lives, such as love, 
kindness and compassion. And now imagine sharing that intention with people all around the world, connecting with that same heart energy, which adds a positive effect to the energy field of all living things. The Global Coherence Initiative unites people all around the world. This is heart math. Heart math is, quote, the cornerstone of the self-regulation component of the Blue Courage program. As such, Blue Courage instructors have become heart math certified trainers in the science and practices to improve the health, well-being, and performance of police officers, end quote. Blue Courage at 13 hours is a fairly large chunk of the training curriculum for recruits. According to the course description, Blue Courage teaches the concepts of, quote, heart set, mindset, skill set, and tool set of police officers, end quote. If you're wondering what heart set is, it's because this is not a thing. The scientists at HeartMath believe that the heart is at the core of all emotion. You can learn to regulate your heart and come into convergence with other people or something. I've spent more time than I care to think about trying to figure out what it means. But what it does do is allow Blue Courage to sell the M-Wave 2 device, technology that, quote, is an innovative approach to improving wellness and facilitating personal growth based on learning to change your heart rhythm pattern to create coherence, a scientifically measurable state characterized by increased order and harmony in our psychological and physiological processes, end quote. All for the low, low price of $199. For me, this raises the question of whether you can trust an organization that sells snake oil. And do you allow them six and a half times more training hours than that of civil rights? So what are recruits being taught exactly? To get a glimpse, I requested the coursework for a few random courses. While some of the coursework seems completely benign and in line with what you'd expect, there are some slides and presentations that range from wildly unprofessional to what I'll charitably call racially insensitive. For example, in a presentation on basic cell investigation, that's cell phone investigation, there's a slide listing the four major cell carriers in the US. The headline on the next slide reads, they all suck. Below the headline, a bulleted list reads, quote, they do not like dealing with law enforcement. They only cooperate to a level described in your search warrant. They will make things very difficult for you in your case. They do not care what kind of case you're investigating. They hope you'll go away." End quote. Or how about some slides in this presentation for the basic homicide investigation class? One cartoon slide was taken from Bible.ca, an online interactive Bible. Or another slide stating the prosecutor's role in your homicide case is pain in the ass. Then there's a slide on victim witness interviews that features a photo of a group of young black men posing in front of a camera. The caption reads, quote, excuse me, sirs, a moment of your time. Any of you guys know anything about this murder? End quote. The final slide in this presentation deck is a quote sales pitch for investigating and responding to officer involved shootings. The CJTC offers continuing education, which is just as concerning. Most of the coursework involves some sort of firearm certification, but there are some other classes out there, like on-target solutions to problem employees. The synopsis reads, quote, 
Every government agency struggles with employees that are insubordinate, lazy, abuse sick time, display negative attitudes, and commit misconduct, end quote. This class is provided by On Target Solutions Group, founded by a guy who, coincidentally, policed in the same city as the Blue Courage people. Another class is The Power of Leadership, hosted at New Life Church. This features Dr. Dale Henry, a speaker and storyteller who will give a lecture titled Herding Worms, How to Manage and Lead Teams, a training program that helps you see why managing some folks is easier than managing others. And we have an additional two-hour course called Excited Delirium and Agitated Chaotic Events. This class is, quote, based upon scientific, medical, experimental, and legal research, end quote. Why are police officers being taught based on experimental research? This class also features a section on report writing for excited delirium and sudden in-custody deaths. For anyone who has read reports on in-custody deaths, this is where that language comes from. One can't help but notice the tie that binds these vendors and training providers is that they've spent time in some capacity as police officers, which seems to be the most critical qualification, as opposed to something like education credentials. Part of the idea with the new form of policing is moving beyond the old way. The coursework for a lot of these classes is built on the experience of cops and not necessarily on things that have tangible evidentiary value, like science and data. Once a recruit completes the 720 hours, they become certified in the state of Washington. And then, as Sean Hendrickson says, after the basic academy, officer training is kind of all over the place. Okay, um, so not there is no um, WAC or RCW that requires post-academy training, um, but most of the agencies, and I don't have an accurate number, but I... A majority of the agencies have post-academy training that's either called uh, FTO or PTO, um, and those requirements vary uh, from agency to agency. Um, so, I mean, the answer is um, what is required. There isn't anything required. And then the variance from agency to agency. Um, there's some agencies that even before they go into FTO or PTO, um, they do. They go back to their agency and receive uh, agency training, uh, and then go into field training or um, PTO. But I feel like I said a lot without saying much. Um, it, it's all. It's really all over the board when they leave the academy, and then when you're done with FTO or PTO and you're on on the road or on your own. Um, there is a mandate that you, you have to have 24 hours of training annually. But, but again, uh, it, there's nothing really in the language that says what that 24 hours of training has to be. Um, and then in 2019, when, when House Bill 1064 passed, now it says that all the officers um, have to receive 40 hours of in-service training every three years. And there is a list of topics that have to be covered on that. So I keep going back to, to that, but, um, you know, I-940 and then ultimately House Bill 1064 did, I mean, I, I feel like that was at the heart of it was actually trying to formalize a lot of the stuff that we're talking about right now. No change occurs, you know, overnight, obviously. Um, I do think that we are going to begin seeing 
the changes in in how law enforcement is interacting with and and dealing with people in crisis um, in those critical uh, incidents. Um, I, I think I think we're still waiting to see see that shift. We we frankly just haven't changed. We haven't even trained half of the incumbent police officers in the state of Washington yet. There's still people who are trained like me that are still out <laughs> on the road. And, and the way I was trained was ask, tell, make. You, you ask someone to do something, you tell them what they're gonna do. And, and if they don't, then you make them. So that culture, that training still exists, you know? And so uh, changing that mindset, you know, that it's gonna take, take some time. So you've, you've had some pretty uh, strong opinions about the training for uh, police officers. You said somewhere between the uh, that day and the pick your next awful video, we as a profession did that to that officer and made him that person. The culture of an agency, the training that, uh, that they're provided uh, post-academy, somewhere in between that and then that incident that makes the news and some of them are really bad. I'm, we're try I'm trying to figure out where where we failed them as a profession. I think that from the day that, that someone applies to be a police officer um, until the day that that event that we're talking about happens, I think there's a lot of things that can go wrong. My goal for this profession is to try to figure out um, if there's any commonality there and what's going wrong and how do we fix it. In the next chapter of State of Accountability, we'll find out what happens after recruits leave the academy and how the culture of the department can define the career path for an officer. Thanks for listening. You can find show notes and links at stateofaccountability.com. Check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash domcampeace for extra snippets and raw content from my work. To get a primer on how officer-involved shootings can affect a small town, or to learn how law enforcement covers up these crimes, go to stonechildpodcast.com, watch the video, or listen to the whole podcast. To help spread the word, leave a rating on your podcast listening platform, or share on social media. Special thanks to Des Sierra Mataro, whose research has been an invaluable addition to the podcast. Thanks also to everyone who provided their voice for this and other episodes.